world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. This episode is also brought to you by Screenlight.tv. Screenlight.tv is a video review and approval service for the post-production industry. Post-production teams can now easily share videos and production files with clients worldwide. Utilize their project management and team collaboration tools that include asset management, frame-accurate video feedback, proactive security, and more. All at a price that won't break your production's budget. Use the video review and approval service trusted by post professionals throughout the world. Screenlight.tv Screenlight.tv Upload anything, get feedback, and finish projects faster. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, I'm your host Gordon Burkell and if this sounds a little echoey it's because we're in LA at an Airbnb without proper soundproofing. But uh, that's okay because we've got the second part of my interview with uh, Adam Epstein and we go all over the place in this discussion, you know we talk about the Beatles, we talk about various elements, so bear with me on that. So we recorded this before the pub night. If you missed the pub night, that's okay. We're going to do it again next year. The thing to keep in mind is our next uh, little event is going to be an online uh, scavenger hunt. And that's going to be later this month. So make sure to join us for that. We're going to post an announcement on AOTG later this week. And of course you can sign up. And so we'll give you more information about that in the next post for the last part of the Adam Epstein interview. But in the meantime, here's part two of my interview with Adam Epstein. Do you, and this is completely offside, but have you ever read the book, um, oh, do you know who Roland Barthes is? Mm-hmm. So have you read his, um, oh, what's that book called now? Um, but basically his last book that he put out is all about that. How right. you discover something not because of the whole, but of a specific moment within it. I agree 100%. Um, but then he gives it these weird names and people are like, that's kind of crazy. Because yeah. <laughs> he comes off crazy when he describes it. Right. Um, yeah, I, w- I mean, I don't personally have any, like, uh, nothing against Roland Barthes, I don't know, but I don't have, like, a, this is the name of, like, finding that moment of, like, yeah, no, yeah. it's, I, like, for me, it's, like, in a song, like, uh, you know, the way that they have a verse, but he only harmonizes on like the back half mm-hmm. of the word. Like, so whether or not you then, you know, if I'm not a songwriter, but you know, then you just have that knowledge of here was a technique of something that I liked that whether or not I'm going to use that specifically, you just have kind of more in your arsenal of, of experience and knowledge to then to be able to either use something in the right moment or at least be inspired by it in a certain way to, to bring like a little twist of something to whatever you're working on. It's gonna sound like a weird question. When did you discover the Beatles? Oh, I I am very very lucky that I have a a, a music. My extended family is very musical. Uh, my uh, uncle is a drummer in the like the Boston Pops and just a really great rock drummer. He gave me when I was five, gave me a tape set that he had recorded of every of every single Beatles album on tape, 
So by the time I was like six or seven, I was because there's so much of that in there where it's like that there's just this little loop of a flute going backwards or Mm -hmm. just these little details that they've sort of put in. Yeah, I think if it's even possible that the Beatles now are almost underrated. I know that it's it's weird to call like, you know, the acknowledged greatest band in the history of the world underrated because if you guys know who's the best rock band ever and it's like, oh, it's the Beatles, but like the amount that they evolved in the time that they did. I was going to say, because I, I always tell people when they're like, oh, they're okay. I'm like, they retired when they were 29. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. George Harrison was, I think he was like 28 when they yeah. when they were done. And they'd already, like... They changed, know, like, history, basically. Can't, yeah. Can't wrap your... I can't even wrap my head around, like, the level of just kind of whatever. I mean, I could go on about that for a while. But yeah, so very early on, obsessed. And uh, yeah, that's kind of carried through throughout I guess so is there like a, a filmmaker that would be similar for you where you get obsessed with their little things that they've placed um, in? not to that level um, I'm trying to think of some it, I think it's for me it's it's harder for films because I think and I not that this is any different from music but the I don't think that there's anyone that's been like that sort of earth-shaking people say like Spielberg but not really I mean that this was like you know one band that was the biggest thing in the entire world like mm-hmm. by far yeah and also the most commercially successful thing in the entire world like simultaneously like that's almost a, to be like the most respected critically and the most popular mm-hmm. and the most commercially successful like at the same time is pretty much impossible um film wise i don't know i'm like in, as i've gotten older i've become more and more and more of a stanley cooper fan just from mm-hmm. you know technique and also his uh the experimentation as far as how much he was thoughtful about gear mm-hmm. and but using gear specifically for a story for a story purpose uh there's a great exhibit in la like a retrospective at lacma of like a really in-depth uh kubrick breakdown and mm-hmm. it was showing you know of the shining is it the one of the it, i mean it had, they, it, they had everything they had yeah. like all his pre-pro on like the napoleon movie that was never made and mm-hmm. like the level of detail and uh, in, into the minutiae that he would go stuff was just so mind-blowing but like i loved they had so like for Barry Lyndon, you know, he wanted to shoot everything special in, lens. Or yes, whatever, exactly. Yeah. So he wanted to shoot everything, you know, by candlelight, which, which <laughs> cinematographer. right? Which I mean, but which but again, that's all motivated by story. Like I'm doing a period piece at this time. I want it to look exactly as if it was shot at this time. So we can't use modern lights. Uh, so that's you know an aesthetic decision motivated entirely by like the story and like the reality of it. So. He goes and gets like a point, an f point five lens that didn't exist made. Like, didn't NASA or something help him with it or something it, crazy I, like that? I'm not sure exactly who it was, but like they had the lens there. Yeah, it is insane looking. It's like it's as big as your head. It has this curvature to it. Oh, I think I've seen that because the Tiff Bell Lightbox did a thing on it. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Um, so yeah, the more that the guys I've gotten older, the more I've kind of like. That this isn't like you know a, a groundbreaking thing. like oh Stanley Kubrick was really good at making movies like that's not not a new take I just yeah. think like the the level of thought and depth and specificity and that he put into it, it blows my mind and I think like the, the more that uh, and like one of the reasons that I love working with Reese too is like he understands that like being a director is so 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 much more than okay and I'm on set I'm calling action. And um, you know, I'm making comments about the performance or the lighting or the way the camera was. It's like it is the everything that goes into it beforehand, and you're making well, the it, 
you're making a decision about every single thing that leads up to every aspect of it if you're doing it right. You're definitely showing up and they're like, that should be almost like, all right, I have, I know, I have, I'm so prepared now, like now we can like, you know, have fun and play well, around. Well, I was thinking like Wes, Hender, Wes Anderson one, the amount yeah. of detail in that. Oh yeah. Crazy. And not, like the nuances that he picked up. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, in that, the sets for that were built in a day. Built from scratch yeah. in a day. It's absolute madness. And so how did, how has yours and Reese's relationship sort of evolved since you started there? Um, I mean, I just, like, we've worked together and spent so many hours kind of in the same room together that I, I luckily, you know, we have, I think, a very kind of sim similar comedic sensibility. I'm a big uh, uh, Anglophile as far as comedy goes. Um, the same uncle who actually introduced me to the Beatles was a huge Monty Python fan. So when I was a kid, it was, you know, Monty Python and Black Adder. Uh, and then I got older, you know, Nathan Barley and Chris Morris and... Uh, all that, you know, um, well, I can't say anything, spaced and like early Edgar Wright. Um, so you should, like, uh, down, literally down the street is Second City. Yeah, yeah. Where Candy and all them. Oh, yeah. All the SCTV it? stuff. Yeah. yeah. So you, I don't know if they'll let you in, but like it, <laughs> well, no, because it's a school, right? So right. They just, so I don't know if, what the rules are, but yeah. Not just crash. Like, what are you doing? Oh, just, you know, doing a, um, oh, God, what's it called when you like when you crash a class oh, and just auditing? Yeah. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just auditing improv 101, you know, just, uh, Curious to get some yes and information. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think like w I'm lucky to work with someone who like A, we get along really well. And so it's not really an ego centric environment. Um, and like we think the same stuff is funny. And, you know, I can anticipate kind of where he wants to be going with something to then be getting ahead of it. But uh yeah, I know it's it's. I never like. You, then I'll go and I'll work with you know someone else who's great, but you're always going through multiple. Withdrawal. <laughs> but you're also, you're also going through. I think one of the things like when you work with someone a long time is you don't have to do that kind of double talk dance where like everything has two layers as opposed to what you're actually like saying and thinking. Not that you're being blunt or direct, but just like when you're feeling out someone for the first time, you have to. To get to what you actually want to say, you have to sometimes go through like a little bit of a process to get there. You have to be more delicate. I yeah, guess. exactly. And and it's not like that that you know, we're blunt. Like if something's not working, he'll be like, "This is fucking terrible." Yeah. And if I don't think something's working, I'll be like, ah, "I don't know." But it's never from coming from a position of like combativeness. It's always yeah. it, all it is is coming from like everyone is trying to make the best possible thing within the like the time constraints and in the context of what we're working on. Well, it also sounds like it's not, because what I've seen with, like, a, when I see directors and editors get in a fight, it's almost like saying it's not working is an attack on the editor or vice versa, saying it's not working to the director. It's an attack on their creative right. process, and then they get defensive. Right. Uh, whereas this, it's sort of, you guys are comfortable with each other, and you're not taking it as an attack. You're no. saying, okay, how do we get this to the next level? I mean, maybe, like, I would talk to him, and maybe he'll say, like, if I say, oh, I don't know about this. And he'd be like, God, that asshole is saying that again. <laughs> no, but I think a lot of times, I think editors, they can get in trouble when A, they're not willing to, not that they're not willing to try something, but that they're, like, they make the decision almost in their own heads beforehand, like, oh, I don't think that's going to work. As opposed to just like, oh, no, let's see. Or anticipating what like that request is going to be and then doing that beforehand to have something, you know, ready to show. 
to then when the thing that you didn't think was going to work maybe doesn't, then be like, okay, well we have that. Okay, now let's look at this other thing. So it's it's you know the empathy to anticipate to then you know be able to kind of play off that ideally. When you're doing those short stuff for SNL, um, who has uh, who has say in the editing room? Like, does Lauren Michaels? Does the crew? Does the cast? Because I feel that the cast might have been involved in the writing process. Are they brought in per se, or is it just it's mainly? So it, it's it's a combination of uh, the writers on the piece, um, the producers on the show, uh, and Reese. As far as you know, the kind of the the it's not even a push pull. It's just like the figuring out the the balance as far as like what what's going to happen. Uh, Lauren usually doesn't, not usually doesn't, like the first time uh, he'll see a piece is when it airs at dress, and then then we'll get notes between dress and air, um, and then, you know, it's just a, uh, and they're usually, like, luckily, they're, they're usually nothing that is controversial. It's like, oh, we have to lose a few seconds here, we have to tighten this up, let's kind of restructure this a bit. Um, but yeah, but it's a combination of uh, Reese, the writers, and the producers. Now, Who's got the best Lauren Michaels imperson- impersonation on the on the in the cast? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, because I feel everyone has one. It's like every actor when they're interviewed, they do their impersonation of them. Yeah, I don't know. I think everyone everyone's pretty pretty talented at it. Yeah. A lot of talented people there. Um. So I guess I'll ha- I have one more question for you, and I, I ask this of every editor I interview, and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, guilty pleasure. Um, let me see. Let me think about this for a while. Or in a while. Sorry, we can edit this out. Sorry. We range from like. You yeah, know, I'm curious. Like, what, I'm curious what some of the other like how. how... Uh, so, well, some people. It's funny because some people don't get what a guilty pleasure is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so they'll just be like, "Oh, I really love Kubrick's work." No. Right? And you're no, like, no, what? No. What? Well, there's, yeah. there's an, and I'll, I'll, I'll get one in a second. But like, there's definitely. Uh, I'm trying to think who wrote it, but there's a great article that's talking about how I don't necessarily agree with it. They're like. The whole term guilty pleasure is bullshit. Like, <laughs> because if you like something, whether or not it's garbage, yeah. like you like it. Yeah. You know, in the same way, like, oh, my guilty pleasure is, you know, eating Fritos. Yeah. Like, because oh, they're terrible, but they're delicious. Like, no, that's not a guilty pleasure. That is a pleasure. Like, you just actively enjoy eating Fritos. Yeah. You just feel bad about it, but <laughs> you're just trying to, like, justify it to yeah. yourself, basically. Um, I'm trying to think of just, like, something that's. I wouldn't even call it guilty. So I, one of my it's one of my favorite movies is like is a Wet Hot American Summer. I don't yeah. know if you've seen it. It's like, is it you know high art? No, but it makes me laugh more than like any other movie. Um, but I'm just think I can. What's a guilt? I need a. I, need I think a like the room that. is one that. I oh yeah, yeah 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 yeah. Just like poorly made stuff. You're tearing me apart. He's got a show coming out. I've heard September I've heard. apparently. When I lived in L.A., there were. I don't know where that. I mean, I guess he gets money from the movie, but there are huge billboards all yeah. over LA of like Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Come see it at midnight. Like all He's over. He's made a killing off it, eh? Yeah, I would hope. He made, because um, I can't remember how much it cost, but he's made a massive profit off of it. Yeah. And to the point where he was talking about re releasing it in 3D. Like he was going to convert it to 3D and re release it. Yeah. And so I don't know what happened to that, but there was actual talk of that because he was like, he could make more money. and. I love it. I actually, I, I got a good guilty pleasure one. I've probably seen Bloodsport a hundred times. Okay, I've probably seen the beginning of Bloodsport three times. I feel like Bloodsport <laughs> on TBS yes, or whatever. <laughs> exactly. I feel like Bloodsport is one of the movies that everyone has seen Bloodsport a million times, but 
no one sat down and actually like so, okay now i'm just gonna watch bloodsport from beginning to end yeah. like everyone like, he gets to the kumite and has a fight but like what happens before that who knows yeah. who knows yeah. um so I'll put that. That'll be my. He builds guess. a relationship with the with big his, guy with the beard. Yeah, yeah. His, you know, his sensei dies. It's very, very intense. Um, so I'll put that. I'll put that for my, my guilty pleasure movie. Why not? Crazy. I always remember, uh, like growing up, Planet of the Apes would always play the original. The Heston one. Yeah, it was yeah. Always on TBS. Yes. Yeah. Like every day. Yeah. It's like they bought it out for thirty years in window right. or whatever. That's but. that Roddy McDowell money, man. Yeah. That's, that's the good stuff. So, All right, well, thank you uh, for joining me. My pleasure, man. This was fun. So that was my interview with Adam Epstein. Again, we're going to be posting that stuff about the. Uh, again, we're going to be posting that stuff about the scavenger hunt. That'll be coming up on AOTG soon. If you have any questions, you can always email us. It's info at aotg.com. You can get us on Twitter at AOTG Network, or you can get us on Facebook, facebook.com/aotgnetwork. I'm your host Gordon Burkell. I'd like to thank Lauren Woodcock, Adam Epstein, MZ for setting this up. And, of course, Andre for helping us cut this. Thanks for listening.